welcome to Different Talks for August. Um, we're talking about diversity and asking that question, are we getting the basics right? Um, before we move into the panel, just a few housekeeping items. Um, please use hashtag Different Talks if you're going to go on Twitter and share with everybody some golden nuggets from these guys. Um, and we have a chat function where you can comment and ask questions as well that we'll pick up for the end of the session. During the Q&A, you can raise your hand and then we can unmute you so you can ask a question as well. So without further ado, I'm going to ask the panel to introduce themselves and then we'll jump straight in. So Nadira, please. Thanks, Joe. Uh, good morning, everybody. I'm Nadira Hussain. I'm the Director of Leadership Development and Research at Socketim. Um, Socketim being the Society of Innovation, Technology and Modernization. We are a membership organization um, of digital leaders and, and professionals, very much shaping and delivering public services. Um, delighted to be here today and, and um, an opportunity with some exceptional learned colleagues, colleagues, Rachel and Sam, to contribute to this very important discussion. Just a little bit in terms of background, so uh, primarily 25 years thereabouts in, in public sector, so the head of IT at Enfield and prior to that at Tower Hamlets, um, have worked across numerous operational and strategic functions, including transformation, customer services, shared services, etc. Um, why I joined Socketim, very much to kind of help um, explicitly to work with people, to very much help them realise their potential, to plug the gaps, talent management, succession planning, all the things that typically and um, ordinarily we haven't been very good at addressing within local government public services. So a real passion, conviction, commitment, drive to continue making a difference and championing, making a difference through focusing on diversity and inclusion. Thanks Joe. Awesome, thank you. I mean, that is a lot of experience. Um, all right, so Sam, your turn. Hello. Well, look, Joe and Rachel, thank you for inviting me to this. Uh, I'm Sam Shah, uh, Director of the Faculty of Future Health. I'm also uh, Chief Medical Officer in a digital health company and advise lots of organisations on digital health. But what's important to me is the entirety of making health accessible, reducing inequalities, and really trying to find a way of improving outcomes and reducing equity in society. And uh, from a public health point of view, I think this is incredibly important and a really important time to have this discussion, not only because of the changes taking place across public sector, but also what it means for society at a timely junction around everything from diversity, illness, society itself, and, uh, and what it means for people. Awesome, thank you, Sam. And Rach, last but not least. Uh, brilliant, thanks, Joe. Uh, so yeah, delighted to be here. Um, my name is Rachel Murphy. I'm the CEO of Different. Um, my background prior to Different was um, probably 10 years public sector, 10 years private. Um, and I, I guess my motivation really around building different was that I hadn't managed to find the company that, you know, I believe could truly deliver uh, for the public sector when I was that side of the fence. So my motivation was around building the right sort of organisation um, that, uh, that could help um, both healthcare um, and government um, in delivery of business change and digital services. 
Um, and, and the kind of rationale for me from a diversity standpoint is, you know, in, in growing a business, um, I, I think it becomes increasingly important to um, kind of understand uh, the, you know, the, the, the complexity around diversity and make sure that it sits, you know, not as a policy within a, a bloody HR set of policies, but more um, that diversity sits as a core part of our business strategy. So yeah, really keen to be here and a big thanks to Nadira and Sam. Brilliant. All right. So little bit pieces about you guys. Let's just jump straight in because we've got some questions and let's face it, we don't need to talk loads about other stuff and about you guys. No offense. So <laughs> Sam, first question for you. Diversity for some has been about paying lip service. With recent events such as COVID-19 and BLM, can it be ignored any longer? Well, I think it's fairly obvious. I don't think that this is a topic that anyone can ignore anymore. And if anything, COVID-19, the issues that are happening around in the US and in the UK and elsewhere around the Black Lives Matter movement, but also everything else related to it, clearly sets out that dealing with race and inequality is something that is everyone's business and just can't be ignored. And for too long has there been either some lip service to it, some relatively minor action, but we haven't really had whole system change that tries to address this. And if we just take something like COVID-19, we're really lucky in that we had some great research from Public Health England. Now, it didn't go far enough as to why those issues happen in, in those parts of society, but it was fairly clear that those people from Black and uh, minor minority groups and other groups uh, were experiencing COVID-19 and death from COVID-19 far more than other groups in society. And that came out of the research, but we still don't know why. But there was disparity there, not only by race, but also by age. And you can clearly see those people living in deprived areas who are older and from ethnic minority communities suffered far more from COVID-19. And then there's the movement across public sector, we have seen this movement take place where people are acknowledging, but they've done this before. The listening and the words have happened before. What hasn't happened is the action. So I think it's, uh, we've come to a point in society where we can't simply just pay lip service to it. We have to do something about it. And no longer is it acceptable, people working in those environments or the outside, just to passively watch and accept the pacifying words. Okay, has anybody got anything to add to that or debate? Um, I'm happy to jump in, um, probably to add two. Um, I think the, the lip service bit is, is particularly key for me. We've, we've known for a long time in healthcare that there are you know, inequalities from a diversity standpoint. That's within organisations and that's how we provide care. But, but I think Sam's point is absolutely key. Um, you know, it's not the time for debate. This is the time for action. Um, and it really has brought it home in the most painful way with COVID-19 um, that, you know, that pe people are, that there is not that equality. Um, and that's from a, uh, a socio-economic a socio perspective, um, but from a race perspective, you know, you name it, it's it shone a light on that. And I think that there is urgent need um, to start taking some proactive action on addressing this. 
And I think just in response to, to that, um, that, you know, that inequality exists between lots of different groups, between men and women, between different groups and different communities, between those with different educational, uh, with different educational status. It's not just race, but race is a big dimension of it as well. And it's, you know, it's important that when we're thinking about that inclusivity, where I look at it is if we want the best outcomes for society, we need a more inclusive workforce that's a decision-making workforce that are perhaps more representative of all of those in society, whichever background they come from. But there are some who are even more marginalized than others, specifically, uh, at, you know, people that come from ethnic minority communities, but also in particular women in the workforce. I think following on from both of the points made by Sam and, and Rach, um, it is one of, of continuously challenging now. We cannot afford for um, words and not deeds and follow on actions. The other point following on from Sam's in terms of workforce being reflective is very much about, so what are the underlying issues that have um, resulted in the inequality of response um, and the impact that has been experienced by ethnic minorities? So I'm speaking about the social and structural determinants of health. I'm talking about the exasperation of the housing challenges and those particularly faced by, um, you know, the ethnic minority communities, um, income, inequality, lack of, you know, education and ensuring that there is an equality of opportunity from that perspective. But for me, it's now about the fallout and the actions and the planning and holding people to account. How are we going to ensure that what we've collectively experienced within our communities and the response, yes, we've been brilliant and phenomenal in terms of responding to um, the chaotic situation that has um, unfolded, but now what? And how are we going to ensure that positive action will follow? Okay. Um, all right, so some really good answers there. Um, and I think that uh, everybody seems to be in agreement that things aren't right, things need to change. But what you said there, Nadira, which actually leads nicely into the next question, which is we quoted you when we had this chat uh, a couple of weeks ago that we can't get the basics right. So therefore, nothing, you know, we build upon something where the foundations are, have got cracks in, it's not going to work. So can you elaborate more on, on what you mean by can't get the basics right? Absolutely. So Joe, um, back to the point, we, we, we had the conversation a couple of weeks ago and, and Rachel and her inimitable, positive, optimistic um, self was talking about, you know, let's focus on neurodiversity and cognitive diversity and, and focusing on the things that, you know, at the moment possibly aren't on our radar, right? How do we ensure that we are forward thinking, incorporating areas that perhaps haven't received the spotlight and need to be thought about? Thinking about that position statement, it was very evident to me, certainly, that if we look at the, the, the kind of nine key determinants or markers of diversity, and we're familiar with those, right? So race, gender, religious belief, whatever it may be, we're struggling repeatedly, as we've just described, to get the basics right. We are struggling to, to meet the requirements from the basic nine 
markers of diversity as per the Equality Act 2010. And what I'd like to do is, is kind of evidence some of that. It's not just a bland statement. We are repeatedly seeing organisations, teams and functions pulling together business cases to justify why diverse teams, diverse organisations, diverse workforces and communities deliver better outcomes. Why are we still having those discussions and debates? The repeated research, the evidence is there. We have seen whether it's McKinsey and Company, Deloitte or others, have evidence that, that diversity is where successful outcomes are being achieved. So, so number one, the repeated conversation about presenting business cases is a no-no. Let's move beyond that. Back to my earlier point, this is about action, right? Um, the Colour of Power 2020 Green Parks um, report has evidenced that out of the 1,099 most powerful jobs in the country, only 52 are occupied by ethnic minority groups. 52, meaning 4.73% of those top jobs are occupied by ethnic minority groups, compared against the, the population of the UK, which is 13% ethnic minority. Look at the imbalance of those figures there. And it also suggests that research conducted of the top roles across 39 categories, and those 39 categories, central local gov, public bodies, private sector, education, sport and charity, charities, 15 of those categories of those 39 have no ethnic minority representation at all. Beyond that, five categories have seen a decrease in ethnic individuals in the past three years and 21 categories, there's been no change. So over the last three years, where senior leaders have committed and assured that positive action will be taken to address these um, gaps or, or the imbalance, there hasn't been visible difference to demonstrate that that is the case. So that's very much from, from Green Park's reports, but really just from my personal experience, having been working at the head of IT CIO level across London, let's look at London specifically. I can count on one hand the number of ethnic or women colleagues that occupied that role across London in the time that I served, and very much some of the further evidence that 13 out of the 33 London local authorities have no BAME representative at a chief officer level. That's a third of our local authorities don't have a BAME representative at a, at, at a chief officer level. How on earth are we going to address some of the issues that we're picking up in terms of the, the diverse needs of our communities, the actual um, emphasis and focus on ensuring that we are delivering services that are fit for purpose for the communities that we serve. So full circle, Joe, back to the point about we can't get the basics right. It's eminently frustrating to continue in a similar fashion where we've had the time, the energy, the focus, the lip service to, to address some of these points that are repeatedly coming up in conversation, but we're not making and changes. So the frustration continues. Um, I'm gonna come in, Nadira, if that's all right. 
Um, I'm, I'm certainly not going to disagree um, by any stretch, but I, I, I think, um, and you're right, my, my outlook is, is, is probably always a, a positive one. So if I liken this to my experience in the last 20 years, uh, my first role in IT, I was the only woman in an IT department, um, and, and that has changed over the years. I think the advent of digital has helped drive um, a, 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 an improvement in balance from a male-female uh, ratio. But I, I also think that you know, the work that we do as a company requires us, to your point, to have a diverse uh, workforce um, because we are building services for the public, for citizens, for patients and for service users. Um, and, you know, we haven't got it all right by any stretch, um, you know, as an SME. But, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that 36% of our workforce is black, Asian, minority. Um, but, but I still think we're right at the start of that journey. We've got a long way to go as well. Um, but I think people truly have to take the responsibility and accountability. I don't know whether it was you or, or Sam that said, but, you know, this can't be lip service. This can't be a we've got a policy or we've got a, a target. You know, this has to become second nature. It needs to be part and parcel of, um, you know, also how we measure companies and organisations that we want to do work with. We should be looking at those at that data and saying, you know, is this supplier or is this organisation a, a truly, you know, a diverse employer? And, and if we look at things like, you know, in, in the health sector, similar to local authority, I don't think sufficient change has happened. You know, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I was really pleased to see the report that Nadir was re uh, referring to earlier because that was useful in that it highlighted what's happening across public sector, across police, across the NHS, across local authority, across central government organisations. And sadly, the proportion of those people occupying board or CEO level positions that were from a, 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 um, a black or minority ethnic background was very, very small to almost non-existent in some sectors. You know, the local authority in, in the NHS isn't that dissimilar in the makeup of CEO, chief officer, chief exec type roles. And, and, and I can see part of that is that people pick people who they know. There's a small group of people that might be very good at what they do. And as they move through the system, they might pick people who they're comfortable with. And I guess this is about helping people have an uncomfortable conversation, an uncomfortable conversation about a difficult topic and an uncomfortable conversation about recruiting from an area where they may not feel comfortable, where they may not have history, relationships, um, but actually opening their minds to try and embrace that degree of diversity, which is not just diversity in terms of people, but diversity in terms of the pool that they're going to recruit from. You know, one thing I was really taken by, and, and this isn't a plug for, uh, for, for different, but Rachel, you know, you, you've got some team members there that come from themselves, very diverse backgrounds, I would say, and that's not just about race. And I think what it represents is there are companies that are supporting public sector who are making a difference, but not just because the company is really good, because they've got people that reflect the needs of the populations we're all trying to affect. And that is so important. So if we really want to see the best of public sector and the best of public services, we have got to do something that is different. And part of that is going to mean challenging and speaking out and, and identifying these things. Because far too often, 
especially in the NHS, I have seen time and time again, excellent candidates either not even get shortlisted or not even get an interview where you clearly are left asking yourself, how on earth did this recruitment process take place? And it's not just about recruitment, but it's about the mindset and culture and organization. And if I look at the red standards and the published data that's out there about the health service, that we, we still have a situation where it, where it is more likely than not that a non-BME candidate will be put into a role or get a shortlisting than a BME candidate. And that still exists. So that inequity still exists. We still have a situation when we look up the makeup of boards uh, in the NHS or in health, where the proportion of board members who are from a non, uh, you know, who are from a black or minority ethnic group is very small still. It's, you know, yes, it's grown, but I think that's only grown because of the non-exec roles more so than the executive roles. And so it's great when we see people stand up and say, oh, well, we've got suddenly increased the percentage from like 7.4% to 8.4%. Actually, what it really masks is what that's made up of. Because having a non-exec one day a month is very different to have a decision-making exec in an organization. And, it's, and that's across the whole of public sector, local authority, health. And, and it comes back to what you were saying around, um, you know, just having organizations that are trying to make a difference to people who are out there in society. And it's that message we need to change. We need to get people thinking about who they're trying to affect so that we get the right people on board. I think the other bit that, um, a slight deviation, the other bit that I wanted to mention um, and, and, and not wanting to call out certain organizations, but I was, I was astounded um, and upset that the people plan from the NHS that was released recently referred to being LGBT as a disability. Um, now, you know, that was a mistake, I, I sincerely hope. Um, but it's, you know, you kind of hope that we're, we're way past that thinking or even the potential for that sort of a mistake. You know, as a, uh, as a gay woman um, who's always been open about, you know, my sexuality. Um, it's things like that are, that's a big red flag. And, and for somebody who, you know, has, has spent a lot of my career in, in healthcare and, and absolutely will be spending many years in future in healthcare, you know, I, I, that, that makes me nervous because it makes me think, well, you know, is there an underlying issue here? Um, or, or was that, you know, was that just a mistake? And, and I, I would be, you know, really nervous about that putting people off people who aren't as comfortable in their sexuality or you know who haven't been uh, out for as long and and then thinking that's a you know a kind of a backdated um organization and i don't think it is i think that there are pockets where there's there's a need uh, to uh, to improve but but would welcome welcome views on that as well well, uh, you know, that, that, that report uh, coming from what is affecting my former organization, I think, as you quite rightly say, there are lots of good people there who want to make a difference and reflect that level of diversity. And whilst I can totally see that what they may have done was perhaps an error, I think it's an error where I struggle with it happening because knowing the governance structures and board structures and the number of people that reviewed it, I, I can see it was an oversight. But there's a cultural issue there in the how did that oversight come about in something so important? How much emphasis and weight is being put on topics such as those? And how did it get through that? 
And I can totally can see that we have to be forgiving and open-minded, but at the same time, that shouldn't have happened because it's about the culture of the organization. So it, it does disappoint me that happened. But unfortunately, I'm sorry to say, I don't think I was that surprised because from having had discussions with people in that organization only less than a year ago, I can see how this has come about. So it's great that there are people in the organization thinking about this and being more diverse and inclusive, but more so than the thinking about it, the action needs to follow. Uh, and that was a moment where they could have, you know, actually had a very different relationship with people out there. And, and I think it's fortunate that people are forgiving, but at the same time, that this still isn't right. And uh, I'm still seeing too many situations where mistakes along those lines are made because the cultural mindset isn't there. Yeah, agree. Okay. So, I mean, there's a lot of views going on there and again, leads me to a really good question for Rach um, because you guys are, are thrown out there. We've got fame, we've got neurodiversity, we've got LGBTQ, we've got COVID that is still, we're still in that. We've got Brexit, we've got all these things. So is diversity just too complicated right now? No, <laughs> um, I think it's absolutely essential. And I think that, you know, to say it's too complicated right now um, would, uh, is, is brushing it under the carpet and, and saying that other things, I mean, you know, uh, I almost hate to use the term unprecedented as it's being banged around left, right and centre. But, you know, this is not, um, none of us, I certainly didn't expect to be living through a pandemic um, in, in my lifetime. Um, but these were problems before we were in this. What's happened is it shone a light on them more so in various different ways. Um, and, and I think if anything, it gives us a catalyst to say enough. Um, you know, in the same way that lots of us are, going to vote with our feet and we're not going to raise pack into the office because somebody's suggesting we might fancy it um you know we have found a different way to work and a different way to operate and that's potentially not for uh, you know for all of us um and there will be different uh, different views on that but but the reason i kind of reference that example is to say um we've we've got to seize this opportunity um we're in a period of time at the minute where things are not as they should be or were before. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's a great opportunity, I think, to say enough is enough. And when we get the workforce back and how we operate and how our operating models, um, you know, are, are kind of put together, that, that diversity is addressed fundamentally and at the, the core of, of what and how we operate. Um, can I just come in, Rach? I think absolutely I'm on, on side with you. This is not something that we can dismiss. If we are going to dismiss it, I think we're doing ourselves a disservice for all the reasons we have just described. And, you know, added to that, why are we still talking about the work that we need to do from this perspective as a bolt-on? This has got to be an inherent way of behaving. Back to the point that, that Sam has mentioned, I think you have, Rach, also about culture, leadership, the way in which we do things around here, we need to get this to the point where it is accepted as um, it happens as a matter of course. It happens such that we make it as a part of the psyche 
and the way we do things around here. And when that messaging comes from the top of the organization and filters through it, and people have the opportunity to understand the benefits, how it adds value and makes a difference, then I think it becomes an accepted way of doing things, right? I was thinking of some analogies earlier on, prior to the um, session starting. We talk a lot about Belbin's team roles, right? We talk about shapers and implementers and team players and recognizing that the same kind of skills within a team are not going to deliver the best outcomes in terms of complementary skills, identifying those kind of strengths and weaknesses. In the same vein, we're applying that logic and rationale further to say that through um, you know, embracing a more open, transparent view of how we work with people, how we become more inclusive, how we bring on more diverse teams to, to deliver these kind of outcomes that we're talking about, we can only, only benefit. That needs to be the message here. And, uh, and I, from my perspective, I think, you know, it's a big, big no-no from me. Which is positive. And, and, I, and I would say that, uh, you know, just to build on that point, uh, only about a week or two ago, I posted a message and it, what I thought was an innocent message as I do. Uh, but uh, anyway, I got a lot of responses about people that had experiences in public sector that has meant that they're not experiencing positivity, inclusivity in uh, going for senior roles, for trying to change the makeup of boards, where they're applying for roles, where they're just not getting through. And you're asking yourself, why? What is it? And um, I'm seeing something else happen where in private sector or the independent sector supporting uh, the public sector, there's far more acceptance and inclusivity taking place than I'm seeing in the public sector. Now, no, by no means is it perfect anywhere, but I'm certainly seeing this shift. And talking to people who have left the public sector and why, it's some of these sort of structural situations, the aggressions that are taking place, what some people refer to as microaggressions, everything from the way someone's name is pronounced through to just accepting the reasons that someone might need time off at a particular time or in a day or these sorts of things where it's, it's things like that. It's um, someone's accent. All of these things are important and we're not necessarily embracing them. Whereas what I'm finding in certainly in the private sector, I'm finding that this is being accepted to a much greater extent because they're finding that in those services that support citizens, wherever they are, that reflecting that diversity is getting better engagement, but better outcomes. And I'm not really seeing that at the top of the system. I'm seeing at the top of the system, a group of people that have all been to the same type of school, the same type of university, the same club. They, they, they look the same, they seem the same, they, they hang out together. And they're not really embracing that degree of diversity that we need, uh, that you've just reflected on. And that's where I think we need something else a different way of appointing that is so what we've done until now isn't working in my view I, I feel that the public sector as a whole is not benefiting because it just carries on doing the same thing and that needs to change we need a different recruitment process different appointments process a different way of embracing the round of diversity and that means getting to the depth of where are the problems and accepting them Sorry, Rachel, were you going to say something there? Oh, I was just wholeheartedly agreeing and saying yes repeatedly whilst I was on mute. Nice. So I think then uh, from an organisational front, what we're really saying here is diversity is not too complicated. 
everybody should be doing it um, and really it not kind of some sidebar piece for someone to do half an hour here and there um, as, as a thing just to say that with hands up going hey we're doing something right absolutely yeah. can't be a tick box exercise joe has to be as i've said embedded and ingrained in the culture of the organizations has to be got to be real yeah awesome okay so what we'll do is from that we're gonna go to those attending um to ask questions and already i believe uh someone had their hand up very quickly um if we look to phil so phil let's unmute you that will help everybody it's a it's a really dynamic interesting conversation i just wanted to maybe look a little bit along the spectrum and say is it enough to remove um, the problems of unconscious bias what about equal opportunities for promotion and retention and development I mean you know, Deary, you gave a shocking stat about the number four point percent so whatever that but what about you know what about the danger of tick boxing that people go great we'll get the numbers what about development retention and the need of that, those those people thank you and, and phil a really really valid point and certainly some of the work that i'm doing from a soccer team perspective working with public sector members and organizations to do exactly that so the leadership academy that we have um devised over the last couple of years we deliver some um discreet and unique programs empowering women as it says on the tin, very much helping create those cohorts of networked women who can feel comfortable developing relationships with like-minded women to discuss the kind of issues and challenges and barriers that we've talked about. So not just undertaking the actual program, but remaining connected as a community of interest and support. We have a top talent programs very much for those kind of operational managers that are thinking about their career progression, once again, creating those communities of interest and we have a senior leaders program. The whole point of this bill is very much about succession planning, the talent pipeline management, and you know, certainly in my 20 plus years of experience, it doesn't happen in an open, transparent and um, credible way. What we're trying to do is address some of that um, the gaps that we've identified and help people on their journey so so help them think reflect during the programs help them remain connected by those communities of interest developing the alumni community that that, that we have done so that 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 ongoing learning growth development continues and very much supplementing with coaching and mentoring so i'm per personally going through an ilm coaching and mentoring qualifications so that we can bolster the capacity and capability. We can offer that one-to-one -one support so that those distinct issues and challenges that individuals are raising, both from their own personal perspective and from an organization perspective, can help to be addressed. But more than anything else, all of these initiatives are helping to bolster the confidence. So the points that Sam makes about recruitment, you know, facing some of those kind of um, issues in a live environment, how are we helping our individuals get ready and prepared and, and confident enough to take these kind of uh, practical issues that they're still responding to in a more proactive, considered way? So certainly pick up on all those points. Absolutely concur with you, Phil. And 
you know, I did say at the beginning that, that my opportunity of working with soccer team is very much focusing proactively on what can we help to do address some of these gaps. The other point really is about sponsorship, unless, and I'm talking specifically for, for women, I've seen it time and time again, unless there is active, proactive sponsorship for women, building their confidence, giving them support, encouraging them to apply for senior roles, it's very, very difficult to do it in a kind of constrained and limited way. So very much improving our role models and women who can stand in front of others and say, I've been there, I've done it, let me handhold and guide you and help you along that journey. Our cur current president, um, Sam Smith, did the Empowering Women in 2016. I wanted to cite this as a real life example, right? So back to reality, Rach. 2016, she did the Empowering Women course. Um, we encouraged her to apply for the vice president's position in soccer team. Since then, she's had some career progression and some seniority in her, in her professional career. Um, she is now the president of the society this year, championing and leading healthy and well communities. We're looking at trying to pull together a course that we want to deliver in the Gambia to help deliver an empowering women program out there to women who have experienced trafficking and all sorts of sexual harassment and, and, and problems and issues. So it's about cascading communities, outreach, and ensuring that that momentum is continued on and generated. So I think there's lots more we can do, and it's about having that positive mindset to do that. Phil, does that answer your question? I've, I've muted him already, so I'm going to go thumbs up from Phil. Um, okay, so the next person we're going to go to is Nick O'Reilly. I'm just going to unmute you. If, um, there we go. Hmm. muted. There we go. So two points I'd like people's views on. So one of my experiences is, is co colleagues mean well but they don't have the depth of understanding and they don't have the lived experiences. So I think some of my colleagues who mean well quite often um, misact badly um, or react badly. And, and one of the examples was around Black Lives Matters and it was okay to send an internal comms, but we weren't allowed to do anything on social media because we're civil servants. Um, it took about 24 hours to get that changed because once it was explained to them, they, they got it. But it's that, it, it's that, importance of how we help some of our senior colleagues understand more um, and, and, and what tools and techniques there are to do that. And the, and the second really quick point, um, I think there's an increasing challenge that and, and I'm dealing with a particular challenge at work whereby it's the, it's, the, um, it's the context of whether it's Brexit or unemployment poverty. So, so I've got one of my staff who's black in a lively way working class, low income area, who's facing pretty horrific harassment on a daily basis. And I don't think it, I don't think we speak out enough about when and where that happens and about, yes, as public servants, we also deliver services to those communities. So how do we help those communities behave better? Who wants to take that? So, uh, so I think, you know, what you speak to, Nick, is really at the heart of reducing social and health inequalities. This is the work that local authorities have tried to do for a long time. Um, part of it's about community cohesion, but it's also about making, giving people an understanding. And I think that then stems all the way through into the way in which 
colleagues have those uncomfortable discussions, but you're quite right. People at a senior level, they want to do the right thing, but they may not know how to. And the example you use there about people using social media about something so important, like the Black Lives Matter movement, is a good example where we need to do more to help people have those difficult conversations that help them get to a better answer. And I was really encouraged. The uh, Crown Prosecution Service about a week ago and uh, the UK Government um, Investments Department a couple of weeks ago uh, did the same and they invited people in, other senior leaders from black and minority ethnic communities um, who were able to speak to the senior leadership of those organizations to help them and give them better understanding, to have a difficult conversation amongst peers where it's not an easy thing to do, where they were being challenged and I challenged them hard, but I think the way we can tackle these things are twofold. One, allow senior leaders to have a safe space to have those very difficult and uncomfortable conversations, which they might find difficult doing in their own workforce, but bring people in almost as coaches, as externals, as in a sort of a non-exec advisory role, if it were, to have those difficult conversations. And you can pick those people from other sectors. And the second thing, though, is, is in those communities, recognize that all of our staff, whether we're in health, in local authority, in central government and civil service, we will have staff that come from those communities where they're facing those aggressions and work out what support we can offer them both through their work, but also that social response, that, that, that welfare check for our staff that helps them deal with those very, very complex issues in society where they will be facing discrimination of all sorts, irrespective of the color of their skin, they'll be facing things uh, and what support we can offer them to try and overcome those things, which won't be easy, but might mean a different type of support. Can I mention one thing? Sam, Rach, Joe, audience, I don't know if any of you watched the school that tried to eradicate racism. Anybody see that? Yeah. What's it? The nominal. Absolutely, Sam, the points that you've picked up but at a school children level, right? 10 to 12 year olds, open discussions about what it means to talk about race openly. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And it did exactly that. Facilitated sessions with teachers and young children. That's, that's the starting point. Starting these open, trans transparent conversations at an age where children start to get it. And we then, Nick, hello Nick, how are you? We try and then work and exponentially, um, it just becomes easier. It becomes easier and second nature to have those difficult conversations rather than how on earth am I going to broach this very tricky subject. Okay. I hope that answered your question, Nick. Yes, thanks. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So we are coming to time. So I want to push one more question out there. I want to be cheeky. Um, let's go to Julie Pierce um, and I will, there we go. She should be able to speak. Can you hear me? There we go. <clears throat> Great. Thank you very much indeed. And thanks for the opportunity to um, listen in and maybe contribute to this debate. And um, we're having very similar ones in the Food Standards Agency. Um, and a couple of things from me, maybe um, a couple of observations and then, then question. Um, so my observation from um, looking at the um, main situation, but more so many, many years, decades of being a, a woman trying to operate in a, in a tech world, 
Um, I would say uh, there is no silver bullet and if there was, I think we might have found it and used it by now. So what I would be saying is it's all of these um, interventions. It's the tiny ones as much as the, the you know, the big grandstanding ones. Um, and maybe somebody's done some research into, you know, where do you get the greatest value? Are they the little tiny ones day by day by day that can make a positive um, in, impact as much as, as a big one? Um, some of the analysis that we've done within the FSA has been um, mindful of the, the individual experience, but, but also um, the importance not only of the organisation, we sometimes talk about the institution and then we talk about the individual, but it's the networks and how an individual's networks within an organisation, that's their day-to-day -day experience. And then also what I push for are the wider networks that transcend organisations um, and, and how they can work um, with me and, and for me. So I would just be sort of um, observing, from my point of view, those, those things may be as, as valuable as some other interventions. The final point is a question is, as we're starting to have more of these open conversations and trying to make them um, more, more real, more relevant, but they're, they're harder um, because of the nature of the, the topics that we're, we're talking about, we're actually possibly starting to see a new minority appear, and that minority are white, able-bodied men. And um, so we're wondering, as we invest so much effort into the other minorities, um, what do we need to do with those white, able-bodied men who are now saying, um, but I'm of a low social class or I'm not biased at all or it's not to do with me or all the usual sorts, sorts of responses. So uh, are any of you also giving any, any thought to that group? I, I might start off there if that's all right. Well, look, Julie, I, I have to say first of all, your point around networks, I completely agree. Networks are important in every single part of uh, society. And we see it work both ways, right? The, the, net, the very networks that resulted in the, the structures, the organization, the institutes and the people, that same approach is almost going to have to be one of the key ingredients to also undoing that and creating a new set of networks. I think you're quite right that they are important. And certainly I valued being part of networks and they're good champions. Many of you are actually attendees today on, the, on, the, on this and I, I won't be able to say all their names, but they're here. But on the other point, around what do we do about a new type of minority that's emerging I, I think the solution is is quite similar in that we need to get to a point where it doesn't become about someone's characteristics but about their capability uh, and their and, and their and their skills to do a job or a role and we need to get to a stage where we can make things more blinded in some ways and that's hard because people's descriptions of themselves when they're applying for roles and going for things often is a description of culture as well. But if we can find a way to normalize for that and come up with a range of different ways of giving people opportunities, we should hopefully try and correct and adjust for not just what could end up being race, but also social backgrounds as well. And, and I know I've spoken to some people who are attendees on this, in this session who might be, who might classify themselves as being white, 
but at the same time come from very sort of difficult backgrounds where we've we've used different ways of mentoring and coaching and giving shadowing opportunities to help them overcome some of those barriers so i totally agree with you those problems exist for lots of people in society i think we have to accept i certainly accept that they are even worse for women from ethnic minority backgrounds uh, and and certainly for me thinking about my daughters as they grow up i don't want them to face the same issues that other colleagues have faced right now but I do think we need to do something for those that are from a new minority. And I think blinding as part of an interview process and as part of a recruitment process is one thing, but also giving career development opportunities later on throughout careers, the sort of work that soccer team's doing, but other organizations doing are also helpful to break those structural barriers. I, the, the only thing I would add there, Julie, is, um, I mean, I, I think it's a really key point, um, and I think we're going to see more and more minorities, um, and I think it's, it's, about, it's about inclusion, isn't it, and it's about recognising that, you know, um, what, what we have been working with previously is going to change, um, and it's, it is inclusive by design therefore um, and that's easier said than done um, but but it, it has to be to allow for the flex um, of you know what 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 we're, what we're in now um, and where we're going to the Dura do you want to I was just about to say a similar um, thing Rach back to the point about you know when you adopt an approach to the to the overarching requirements you can absolutely flex and accommodate for emerging emerging patterns whether that's new minorities or otherwise it's about a standard responsive template and response but flexing to accommodate accordingly absolutely and once that's embedded and ingrained in the organization you welcome the opportunity to test that and, and accommodate accordingly. So absolutely with you on that. Awesome. Was that uh, answering your question there, Julie? Yes, that's great. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, guys, we have, I am conscious that we have loads more questions, but we are over time by quite some and it is your lunch break. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much to the panel. It has been a really interesting take on diversity especially in the health sector um, and during a pandemic so if you do have any questions please don't hesitate to hit us up on twitter um, at be different or linkedin um, we'll be sending an email out to everyone with our panel contact details should you want to take this conversation further because i know that they're going to want to carry on this chat at some point so thank you very much guys have a great day uh, thank Thank you, everybody. Thank Bye. you. Bye.